headed out. Welcome to episode 64 of Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast, telling stories from an isolated L.A. community week by week, fan by fan, and painstakingly match missed by painstakingly match missed. Guys, at this point, we have uh, sadly undergone what is a significant portion of the season with no games, but we are pleased to still be bringing you guys content. So this week, Chris, Christian, and I are joined by Mr. Alexander Dwyer himself, Dweezy. Welcome to Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. It's good to digitally be here. You guys are really bright and shiny, and I am in the darkness of my front porch uh, as opposed to the welcoming atmosphere of my backyard. I don't know. If it gets too loud, just let me know because I'm just I'm just out here on the front. No, it's good, man. It'll give us aspects of uh, the backyard without actually being in the backyard. Yeah, see? There you go. And I'll, I'll switch it up and so that when you guys do truly get to come to the backyard, you get the proper experience. I don't want you to have the watered-down version. It's Definitely officially little. on my bucket list. No, you guys are coming. Know. It's it's happening. Remember, like it's cool to be here because well, to be here digitally because we had been messaging back and forth for like a few weeks before to try to get you guys in the backyard before all the the shutdown. So it's cool to to be on, and we'll definitely we're gonna make that happen. And for those of you that don't know what the backyard is, Alex Dweezy is uh, one of the hosts of the FCFC podcast, which is filmed in the backyard at Exposition Park at Dweezy's house. So, True. Uh, in front of a live and studio I, audience. Yes, there, there's a live studio audience involving many neighborhood characters who pop their head over and spit out bits of wisdom. But mostly the wisdom comes from the scholar of our group, which is named Slim. He's extremely <laughs> uh, well-articulated and never curses. And then Josh and I, we go by another opposite term that's not scholar, and uh, we say things that are very, you know, inappropriate. So please, if you come visit that podcast, be aware that Josh and I will be the ones that, you know, break up, all, break all the rules. And for this podcast, I'm just, I'm just going to try to play it nice because I've been told I can't swear, and that's been devastating. Well, when you don't get your rebellious thread out on the FCFC pod, uh, you also bring a scholarly aspect to the season pass podcast as well, too. Also recorded on scene there uh, at Exposition Park. Yes. And shout out to our good friend and fellow journalist in the world, Ryan Wallerson, who's out there somewhere in digital cyberspace stitching together news snippets that we either all definitely need to hear or need to hear a little less of because the doom scroll has gotten real. I like how you flipped it and reversed it and called yourself the non-scholar and went into the front yard. Plus you're lurking in the dark. (laughs) (laughs) It's not tea in this glass. Okay, yes, it's tea in this glass. Well, we sincerely appreciate you making some time to come on the show. I think as familiar with your voice as the LAFC community is, What we haven't really had is a chance to hear your story. You tend to be the conduit in which someone else becomes the storyteller and you bring that to us here in the community. So we are going to kind of sweat you under the lights here a little bit and put the microscope on you, sir, as we kind of dive into the life and times of Dweezy. But before that, we kind of wanted to run it around and recap what's going on in the community at the moment. So, boys, what are some stuff that's been keeping your mind on LAFC during this crazy time? Well, a couple of things. Well, a couple of episodes, I'd say, shooting the shot has been super interesting with Will Farrell and Carlos Vela. I thought those were two very compelling interviews, very candid, especially Carlos. Like, you forget that he doesn't like to speak to the media a lot just because of all the scrutiny he gets as a player and tries to 
be uh, a little private, right? Well, when but he shows up looking like the Big Lebowski, that's kind of to be expected, right? Right. Well, that and that's you know that's one one good observation. I I think that over the last couple of years, he seems to feel more comfortable, and his personality is coming out more. His hair is literally. You know, he's letting it down. He's wearing more, I think, clothes that uh, he feels that he can ex- express. And everyone loves him for it. I, I, I really liked it. I, and I think he, he, he is funnier than people realize. And I think his timing is great with his comments. I love that something about LAFC has caused his personality to blossom and, and be open in a way that we never saw from Carlos Vela, you know, prior to, to LAFC. And it's really been... I don't know, just I think one of those things that's been a bizarre byproduct of LAFC that here you have this world-renowned star, the biggest name on our roster, unarguably, and yet we've discovered so many new things about him as he sort of relaxed and acquiesced to our culture. Fascinating. Yeah, he's uh, uh, I, I just would add to that. I haven't, I've yet to listen to that Shoot in the Shot episode. I listened to the Will Ferrell one, which is also very good, and people should listen to it. But yeah, Carlos, I had you know, the chance to do like a longer interview, a one-on-one interview with him for LA Magazine. And then I wrote a story about it. But yeah, there's like so many nuances. You brought up humor, but there's so many nuances to like who who he is as a person. And like, I actually think it's kind of cool that he's guarded. But yeah, like the more he lets us in, lets people into his personality, the more I think we can see that someone who's as skilled he is, as known as he is, can have like not that domineering celebrity personality that can often like give all of us headaches. So it's cool to have like another type of personality that's doing that. And uh, obviously like a very stand up quality guy. Um, so it's cool to, that he's jumping on some of these interviews. Yeah. What were you going to say, Chris? I just interviewed, interrupted you brother. No, no, on no, your own show. Just, <laughs> no, it's all good. I, I was just going to say um, that, yeah, other than the uh, shooting the shot episodes, Vince LaRosa came out with uh, yesterday with yesterday and today being the anniversary of our inaugural home match at the bank. He came out with some behind the scenes history and little snippets of details that I thought was really good. You know, I'm always big on the history and the un- untold stories. And that's part of why we do this podcast is to get to the behind the scenes stories. And then another aspect of the community that I'm looking forward to is LAFC had started the uh, black and gold community relief fund and uh, they have their first blood drive scheduled uh, up in may i think it's may 8th and so i've got my appointment on may to go down to the bank to donate blood but it's it's just the fact that even with everything going on lafc is still trying to find ways whether it's through the emls games with remy martin or having um you know do replays of games and having max involved or doing community outreach like this lafc is still trying to just do everything they can to keep this community together and i think that Stuff like that is great. I'm curious to hear, what were your guys' memories of that first game at the bank and the Simon goal? And where were you guys watching the game from? And what was your experience like that day two years ago? I sit in the southwest end, so I had a great view of that goal. There was so much pent-up emotion waiting for that match to come. You know, there were six away matches. And that day was everything, I think, for most of us that we expected. Because I got there early, tailgated. I joined into that march walking up to the to the bank. It was just everything I ever wanted and saw from abroad that happened on match days. It was finally here after so many years of this L.A. football community wanting it, right? 
And the match itself was, you know, we played well. It's just there was just no goal. And that's the only thing that was missing. And it happened at the end. And I felt like I had a really good view, like I said, just because it was on our side where we sit in terms of watching that goal go in. And and that place exploded. I think it was one of many celebrations that the entire stadium partook in. Chris, where were you during that moment? So I was uh, all of you hospital in Burbank. Uh, so the... The 29th is always kind of a mixed mixed bag of emotions. The 30th, so today is April 30th. Today is actually the two-year anniversary of when my dad passed away. And so I was in the hospital on the 29th with my dad watching the game on my phone. And um, that, uh, you know, but I, I do remember, you know, very much just the atmosphere and everything that, you know, we had been anticipating and putting putting forth all the effort. And, and it was... You know, it was a beautiful moment uh, just to be able to be there, and I, you know, it was, it was, it was great in the moment to see the the game finish the way it did. You know. What about you, Dewey? Yeah. So, Chris, that's a really a really cool memory with your dad, and in a way, I actually remember thinking about my dad a lot that night too. He passed away much later, but and it's funny how memory changes over time, and how you relate to things based on wherever you know. We can only ever talk about the past from the present, but. That night, like a lot of things came together. Obviously, my favorite sport, my favorite city, my you know, the, so many the culmination of so many things that so many of us who were following the team and the game and everything developing early. But I was also in the press box and I was sitting next to Bill Plaschke of the LA Times, and um, you know, I had watched him. I, I grew up really obsessed with sports, uh, and my dad would like always proudly joke with his friends that I would like watch like the sports reporters and like you know, ESPN in the morning instead of cartoons, which like, you know, was pretty true actually. Like, and I would like be betting at other mo Monday night football parties and things like that. And it was like this cool moment to be with a journalist of his caliber. And, um, the funny thing was as a devout, like soccer, well, how could we, how could we describe Bill's, uh, you know, relationship with soccer in the city? He, let's just say he hasn't always been the most enthusiastic about the sport in the country or the city. And that night, uh, like, changed his entire perspective of what soccer could be. And he actually, like, was asking me a lot of questions and I was helping him understand the culture. Yeah. And a lot of the things we discussed, like, you know, helped him shore up some of the things he was trying to say in his piece which became part of that really awesome spread that the LA Times did about opening the stadium. And so it was just really cool. It was like this full circle thing where, like, I think when I was a kid, I probably dreamed to be a sports journalist. And then I was sort of doing it, and it was for the best and coolest reason. And then, yeah, there was no way the goal wasn't going to go in if, you know, if I'm in the Truman Show, that's how it's going to happen. And sometimes I feel like I'm in the Truman Show right. when it comes to LAFC because everything about it seems like a dream. Right. Do you, would you call Bill Plaschke a skeptic up until that moment? That's a good way to put it. You know, that's a that's a very light way to put it. I, I just think that, like, you know, he calls it how he sees it when in terms of sports in this city. And he hadn't seen that sport take hold in that way. And I think it was a real eye opener for him. He was really genuinely like he was constantly asking about what he was looking at because he could, it's almost like he couldn't wrap his head around it. And so I loved that because it's that same bewilderment, even now, a couple of years into it uh, with Angelinos and non Angelinos, which is the territory, like all of us get to explore and explain and have podcasts about and ask people about, we're all just sort of like, trying to understand what's so awesome about it and you can't really boil it down you have to experience it that's always been 
the thing and that first game was such an experience it was it was cool for him i think to have have gone i'm sure it's a memory in his own his own life so do we, do you find that you know especially over the last 2 years that you're finding more people that are professionals that are in the industry journalists and they are just now coming to the idea that oh wow soccer is a reality or or would you say that before LAFC existed there was a lot of people that were more believers that it, it could exist yeah like and this is me coming I, I definitely consider myself as like a journalistic outsider I, I haven't like and wasn't doing sports journalism for, for like some extended stretch of time and nor was I like following the American soccer conversation as closely I was probably more dismissive of it that being said what I notice is that it really it's it's splintered into two f- fractions and one is like the we've always been supporting this and this league's been around for something decades you guys are just coming around to it it's like it's like the people that get mad that they're the underground band that they liked is now getting famous like we were we were you know i'm i'm oversimplifying there's way more variants than this but like in terms of journalism circles it's like oh so like now people care and they sort of like there's like a chip on your shoulder thing about having covered the league before trying to tell these stories before when no one cared about it and then there's the people who are just getting turned on to it, who even that fraction is like, you know, some of them are genuine and come from like a respect for the game or some knowledge of it and just like are like psyched to see it be here, both in terms of quality and the community around it. And then there are the people who are just like, oh, wait, this is like the fancy new thing in town. I'm just taking a look at it. And I think, every, I don't know, in a way, I'm like, everyone's welcome. Like, this is all part of it, right? Everyone has their different perspective on where they're coming from. And that is impossible not to inform you, despite what some journalists might say about objectivity. Like, I think all of us, the very nature of wanting to tell a story about something is a subjective act. So you're, you know, you're always coming from a place that, that you care about. So, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a mixed bag, Chris, but it's hard to make the argument that the sport and covering the sport hasn't become more popular, even if, like, you know, the outlets and the journalism industry itself has, like, continued to, like, hobble along on just a little bit of life well, why don't we rewind it a little bit let's let's take it to the origin story of uh of Tweezy. so obviously you said that this is one of your favorite cities meaning you didn't grow up here you didn't always live here where did you grow up where were you born and how did you get introduced to football or the beautiful game yeah so it's kind of a, a strange story my dad actually went to high school right down the street uh from where i'm talking to you guys right now at loyola high school and uh, my mother went to St. Monica's over on 7th Street. Catholic boy. Me too. Catholic. <laughs> um, and if we're going to keep the story more Catholic and more specific, uh, they actually met in fifth grade at St. Paul's the Apostle in West L.A. Wow. Where everybody on my mom's side of the family, everyone on my dad's side of the family, all went to grammar school and all of their kids went to grammar school. It's like both sides, everyone kind of a big family, very close on both sides. My grandma actually lived across the street from St. Paul's for a very long time. And the weird boomerang that is Utah, the Utah experience of our lives came from my parents basically being powder hounds, snow, ski, powder hounds. And they were also very much the black sheep of their families. They actually got married on the ski slope in a very tiny ski resort called Brian Head in southern Utah. The population is 89 people. Wow. There, is, there, isn't even, there isn't even a gas station there. There's nothing there. There's a small, like there's a, there's a 
post office basically and some ski shops that are seasonal and uh no stoplight no nothing and so they went out there like kind of on a whim and then sort of kind of had kids on a whim and they like suddenly found themselves with like kids that didn't understand why they lived in utah and everyone else in the family lived in los angeles so i spent every summer of my life down here with my cousins and bounced around between let's see a lot of it was in west la different neighborhoods in west la so cheviot hills venice culver city then like later topanga canyon like the other weird hippie dimension to this there was time spent in the Palisades. There was time spent. So it's kind of all over. And obviously, my grandma's in West L.A. And so it, in a way, it's like I've always felt it was unfair to say I'm from Los Angeles. And it's unfair to say I'm from Utah because it's like I really grew up between both places, which is actually, I think, a kind of a rare thing where someone has an extremely small town experience and an extremely big city experience, because I think that's one of the biggest divides of all. And I think anyone who, you know, is an immigrant family whose parents came from like a smaller town and they go visit that town and you get to see how that lifestyle is, you can kind of contrast that with like what it's like, you know, being here. And so in the same way, you know, that someone might be, you know, have those, those memories from, you know, some other country in here, it's like, I kind of have those, same similar thing in Utah and I'm like now really grateful for everything I got to experience there especially involving like the natural world and skiing and snowboarding and hiking and all that kind of stuff but ever since I was a kid I was just like yeah like you know Los Angeles is also home and like we're all going back there at one point so let's like not kid ourselves and you know not having any family and not a ton of friends there meant like we were always here or people from here were coming there but for the most part, they didn't want to come there because it was like a weird backwater town. And so we were coming here. And um, that's where my first relationships with soccer came from. There was no way I would have like started playing randomly in Utah. I would do soccer camps in the summertime down here with my cousins. Uh, Stitter soccer, for those who grew up in West L.A., um, is a pretty big soccer camp that several people in the LAFC community also went to. Um, Stitter was Sean Stitter was like a, a British immigrant who had several other homies who he like ran these pretty dope uh day camps that lasted a few weeks like in june so over i think it was in culver city if i remember right and then i also did another soccer camp actually at roxbury park in uh, beverly hills it was like a beverly hills soccer camp um which there's like a whole other side story to that where i was like actually i actually ended up like being in a movie based on like some casting that was like you know it was like these like la things which were always like strange stories to bring back to like like my outcast group of friends in in southern utah but um this sport i think became such a big part of me because two things one my abilities i i was very good when i was younger without trying to toot my own horn i you know i, I could make it happen and i had aspirations for sure like as a kid who grew up obsessed with sports in general to like become a professional athlete. Like that was the first goal. Like you just want to go pro, like, of course, right. Like we all just like love playing and you want to see how far you can go. And I planned for sure to like try to play in college. Um, college was always going to be in LA. And so, yeah, there's that part, the playing part, but then there was like the watching part, which was 
a little bit more obscure 94 World Cup, like so many people that I'm sure you guys have interviewed, maybe you guys yourself, people that have come to the backyard to do the FCFC podcast, talk about the 94 World Cup as such a seminal moment in uh, American soccer history. I was the same. I still have my Romario uh, card, my... I think it's like a tops like trading card because I was like collecting all these cards during that time and watched the final at my shout out to Pat LAFC Pat uh, at my cousin's house in Thousand Oaks where Roberto Baggio missed the penalty sailed over against Brazil and causing Brazil to win that final which was at the Rose Bowl. I didn't go to a game then but I did go to this really cool thing called Soccer Fest where you got to like see the trophy at the convention center and um, as I said like you know I was already in these all these soccer camps and playing all my cousins played they played soccer and hockey we were a soccer and hockey family even though i grew up in like the wintry area like there was no rinks or organized hockey where i lived although i thought hockey was also cool thought all sports were cool but yeah soccer was the one i was best at so and i and i i think even then i also had like a a big interest in in the rest of the world being in a town of 89 people was really isolating and I would come to the big city and I always loved being around people and I didn't understand why there wasn't, you know, different kinds of people. I mean, there was literally a total of like eight kids that grew up where we grew up. Like it's me and my two brothers and then, or I guess seven, like two other sets of kids. And so it was really not to say like the diverse isn't even like a question that comes into it. Like you're just like literally isolated and um, it's a lot like quarantine. So maybe that's why I can, I've been able to, to handle that a little bit more is like, you just, you know, I didn't have like a lot of the things that my cousins had here. I didn't have access to music. I didn't have access to things like certain channels, MTV, Cartoon Network. Like, you know, we didn't have Nickelodeon. I remember that being like such a big deal. Like everyone had Nickelodeon. They would talk to me about like just the colors orange and that slime green still have like weird connotations in my mind because like we didn't have those but yeah so it's 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 kind of a strange way to grow up but um but soccer was always something that connected me to los angeles soccer was something that connected me to the rest of the world and those were the two things that i think even as a young kid i knew were going to be heavily involved in my life after you got to college uh age you uh, applied, you got into Loyola Marymount in West LA. And so what was that like? Because then at that point, you're now living in Los Angeles pretty much all year round, right? Because you're still spending your summers in LA or would you go back to Utah in the summer? Yeah, it's sort of like, it became a funny thing, right? Because I was here now more of the year, I was starting to bring my friends to like Southern Utah for like, you know, sometimes for spring break or for like a summer visit because they didn't, a lot of the people that I would meet in college. And by this time I had like a whole other network of friends in LA because I went to Loyola summer school, Loyola high school summer school for like four years. And I went to UCLA for two years for summer school. I I really wanted to go to UCLA actually, but after going to summer school there, it felt like this giant city. And I didn't like the vibe of like office workers, like walking around. It just felt like it was too big. Like it was just too, I, I wouldn't be able to find like some of that small town longing in a way coming out. But I ended up applying to just USC and LMU and I got into both of them, but USC seemed like too businessy, like too corporate almost. I say that now, like I go to USC all the time to like abuse their libraries with my working hours. I mean, not now, but I was like, I I spend a lot of time at USC now because I live so close and it has its benefits. And UCLA is a big part of my family and my mom worked there for a long time. So I kind of like appreciate all these schools 
so yeah, LMU became the thing and the connection with like Jesuit education and, you know, my father having graduated Jesuit and me spending a lot of time at Loyola High School, you start meeting these people, other people that I've been friends with since like middle school through cousins and through other friends. Um, you know, you're like, wait, I've got this like wild experience called Southern Utah that I can just like bring you guys to if I want. And so <laughs> I would, I would, I would bring them there to like impress them. And the best thing about, the best thing about this is, is this, all right. I still have friends in Southern Utah too. I would bring them here and they would be like, how could you ever live here? Like, how could you handle this? And then I would bring my friends from LA there and they'd be like, how could anyone live here? It's so small. <laughs> it's so, you know, and this, this illustrates to me this like urban and rural divide thing, like where I feel like super lucky to understand and appreciate uh, the value of both. But um, it, it was cool to have that contrast. And I, something I didn't appreciate until college. And so, yeah, at LMU, you know, I, I very much fell into the, to different things. I played club soccer there. I, I didn't, I, I was going to try to walk on and try out for LMU's team, which ironically was once coached by Todd Saldana, just a little LAFC trivia for you. And obviously LMU is where our boy Adrian Perez went to school as well. They were and are a good team, but they like, they never win trophies. You know, they get like good recruits, they get good players, but they never, they're never like, a top program in the in the sense of like silverware the way that you know UCL, UCLA is like one of the most historically successful NCAA programs but I basically got shook and realized I wasn't as good as I thought I was certainly not as good as I thought I was when I was a kid and I decided not to try out I opted instead to just play club soccer where I made a lot of good friends one of whom Pierce I don't know if any of you guys have ever met yeah TSG Pierce PO the pod yeah, um, Peel the he, Pot. I listened to that episode. It was good. He's uh, yeah, so, he coaches now, right? He's he's got exactly. the he's the one that you inter- yeah yeah. So P so Pio is from an Irish family, and he, he went to LMU. I met him. He was the goalkeeper in our in our club team, and ironically, he also went to St. Paul's, so he knew all of my family. Like I always find it's very easy, you know, in West LA you know, life to find people that know. You know, people I grew up with in my family. So it's, it, it feels sometimes that L.A. is like a small town in that sense. And LMU is certainly that as well. What year did you graduate from LMU? Oh, eight. Oh, my wife was oh uh, nine. So I'm sure you guys crossed paths. Yeah, probably. It's a small it's a small campus. Super and like small. In, adi- in addition to club club soccer, I got to like enjoy some of the other cool things that like small student life gets you, which is like smaller class sizes better relationships with the professors, like more freedom, the newspaper there, which I definitely like fell into in terms of like writing for what is completely student run. So there's no academic oversight. So you can print whatever the hell you want. Sometimes the disastrous consequences, (laughs) you know, but like you get to do a lot at a smaller school. And so, uh, yeah, in the end, because of the friends I made and things, I I was really happy I did that. And I also did my first ever MLS coverage Dun, 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 while I was a student at LMU, um, yeah. the year David Beckham came, I got a credential to cover, I believe the Galaxy played Toronto FC, actually. And um, I went down and covered that with a friend of mine, and it was a horrible experience. <laughs> I have a quick, quick follow-up on the Utah part. Yeah. Did anyone there like soccer? So... As you might imagine, or as would make sense, the people who played soccer in Utah were mostly Mexican-American. They yeah. were Salvadorian-American. They were Guatemalan-American. And I was friends with those kids. There was like an all 
Spanish speaking league that I played in, like an adult league, which I was like the only white kid who played. And I actually once when I was like probably like so much faster and like better than like, you know, these older guys who were just like you know, playing on the weekends and like, you know, blowing off steam. I like scored a couple goals and then they like they like got me down and like I was I became wedo like, you know, like Jonathan talks about um, becoming mm-hmm. and like I got like after one goal, I remember like getting like kneed in the back by this guy when I tried to turn on him. And I like, you know, I don't know that tried to be graphic, but like, you know, I ended up having to like pee blood for like a week because he like ruptured Ooh. my kidney. Uh, in that le- yeah. Yeah. Or like, yeah, it was, it was really, it was, re- it was really gnarly. And I was like, damn, like this is like the ferocity that I need in my life. You know, I was like into it. I was into like the intensity. So that was the kind of like the people, you know, there were people who played, and I played in high school, but these kids were like, half of them joined just because I told them to, you know, like, I was just like, come on guys, let's go try to play. And you're trying right. to just rally people, rally people to the cause rather than like any sort of concerted, you know, culture. Although RSL, let's see, when did RSL came into the league? I think I was already in college. I think they came in like 2006 or four. Was it 2004? Did they come in? That sounds 2006? Right. Yeah, I don't remember. So. So suddenly, of course, because like Utah and I hate Utah teams like across the board, including the 49ers, which I'll always think of as a, a Utah team because they had Steve Young and every Mormon kid in history, <laughs> like, like felt like they were Steve Young's relative. Like, yeah. So I just like and it, well, I should note, like my family wasn't Mormon. So I was like, you know, extraordinarily like stigmatized a lot of times than my family was because our a lot of the communities, especially like down the hill, I didn't go to high school up on top of the mountain where I was living for most of you know those years. I was going down to school down where we like ended up getting another house, a city called Cedar, which was like 40,000 people. And they have like a very famous Shakespeare festival. Maybe people have like passed through it going to like Zion National Park or whatever. But in like the, those communities, it's extremely Mormon, like extremely conservative Mormon, like and so there's like a lot of tension if you're not Mormon or you're like doing things and like soccer was definitely like this sport that was like looked at a little suspiciously compared to the normal ones. But then once RSL came along, it seemed like the culture started to change because like, you know, they like love the jazz and they're like, well, we've got this new team. And then they started loving RSL and I hated RSL from the beginning. <laughs> and so, yeah, so it, soccer in Utah is weird. And, and when I say Utah, I'm talking specifically about Southern Utah. Northern Utah is like a whole different story. And there's, it's like a real city and there's like a whole other thing. But it's a it's an interesting state for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of natural beauty there. But I still think some of the social aspects of that state are a little, a little tricky, um, especially if you're coming from like a, a place where people aren't as stigmatized as they can be there. Uh, let's, sorry, I took you off on this tangent. Like moving back to dude, I'm gonna said. go on tangents all day. I hope I, <laughs> you said this. You said we're doing a five-hour podcast, right? Yeah. Just, no. Just, just get mean, ready. I'm gonna. Yeah, we'll I'm cut just it up gonna, into five separate episodes. Yeah. yeah I'm just gonna watch. I'm just going to watch as you guys like fall asleep as I'm rambling. It's going to be not great. at all. I'm, I feel like you've woken me up. So uh, you gave us a little bit more background in terms of Utah, but you said you had a very not so happy or I mean, not pleasant first experience, or I don't know how you want to describe it um, when back and first came. Like from there, did that spark interest into this kind of career path that you're in now? Like explain or talk about that first experience and how you expanded on that and. Well, the funny thing, was, yeah, the funny thing was I had already been covering music at that point. Okay. I only started writing in a newspaper because I emailed the college editor and I was like, why don't you guys 
and Jonathan will appreciate this. Why don't you guys cover more rap concerts? Why don't you cover more rap <laughs> yeah. albums? Uh, why don't you like? Why is this all just like whiny white boy music? Like, come on, guys, come on, let's get in there. Let's find out what else is in the world. And the editor emailed me back, like, "Why don't you write it?" And I was like, "Okay, you know, I had no plans to become like a journalist or a writer or anything. They just asked me to, and so I started writing. And then that led to like me thinking I know everything at that age, and and ending up like heading the opinion section of the paper, which was like a whole other thing, um, where I like got to just uh, say whatever I wanted and encourage other people to say whatever they want. And like again, student-run newspaper, so you can like, it's pretty, it's pretty fun. Like that was like one of the most fun jobs I think I ever had. And so yeah, like somewhere towards the end of I think it was like my junior year, and by that point I had already gone to like. You know, when I when I graduated high school, like my love of the game was such that I like went to Europe, like my first traveling trip. I, I like applied to tickets for Euro 2004, like somehow got tickets to Sweden versus the Netherlands in Faro, uh, Portugal. And like I flew all the way to Portugal with like a friend of mine who didn't even like soccer, like basically dragged him across the world. And I got to like see the Euros and like be in Paris and like buy my all the knockoff kits I could find, you know, like it was just is so it was like being in heaven, like it reminds me of like going to New York when I was a senior in college and like going and tracing the hip hop history, you know, and like going to certain neighborhoods that I'd only heard about sung and songs. It's like the same kind of thing for those That's of us who like, yeah, yeah, follow no. European soccer. And I want yeah, now, so, I, I want now the thumbnails of your trips, both in the Euros and also the hip hop. New York, because that, oh, that's good to me. Yeah, yeah, that'll. I mean, Jesus, that will be a five-part episode. But no, like, let me just let me just finish up about how the Beckham thing, or like yeah, yeah. You know, going to cover that game. So yeah, like you know, I had been traveling by then, and I think even by then, I had also gone to the World Cup in 2006 with kind of like my comrade in arms, who I met through the club team, who actually was a walk-on and played on LMU's team too. Uh, his name's Kai, and he. Um, he and I became, he really opened my mind to like what travel could be and uh, helped sort of open up like the possibilities of countries I wouldn't have considered before going or like the value in soccer, both of us like loving the game. And we just basically like made like a blood oath to go to every World Cup until we died. And I remember the 2006 World Cup, everyone in, on campus was like, yeah, we're going to go. Like, we're all going to go to the World Cup, bro. Like, it's going to be rad. Like, you know, and then I'm going to like go drink because I'm under 21. It's going to be dope. And we were just like, yeah. But I'm really going, though. Like, I'm really going to go. Like, I'm going to, like, not buy anything. Like, you know, my parents, like, managed, like, these, like, small condos when I was – like, we didn't grow up – like, I, they did – you know, it wasn't like I could afford to just, like, you know – like, I, you know, you'd save, like, little bits of money here or there. You wouldn't buy, like, too many, like, crazy nice things. You'd, like, live with clothes for a long time just so you could afford to go to these, like, trips. And when you go, I would couch surf, which is, like, you stay at people's houses for free. So it was, like, balling on a budget, like – you know, seeing <laughs> seeing these games on a, on a serious budget um, and just wanting to be around it and around the culture and the excitement um, that it had. So I had all that and I couldn't deny like my love of the game. Right. But, you know, I had been trepidatious about wanting to write about sports because of how fanatic I was about it. And I like decided just on a whim, a friend of mine who actually became a photographer at LAFC games later, her name is Sue Capra. She and I were both like, eh, let's, she played club soccer but on the women's side. And she and I were just like, let's just go like cover this game. It'll be interesting. Um, and I had been to games, I think, before that in Carson. 
but I had never, I'd never like been in the press box there. And I think the only reason they let me even have a pass was because it's called the Loyola in the newspaper, like the Los Angeles Loyola. And so it's not like LMU paper. Like, otherwise I feel like they probably wouldn't have given me that. I, I don't know. I don't know how it works, but, uh, I, yeah, I remember I sat next to the LA times guy. I forget who it was at the time. I don't think it was Baxter. I think it was somebody else, but then we went down and like, did the post game and it was it was just like so stupid like the whole thing was stupid like it was too formal <laughs> like everyone was like such a nigel about it like with pocket protectors and like it was just like i don't i didn't understand it was sports <laughs> and everyone was like everyone was treating it like it was like a like a business seminar you know and i was like i don't understand this like you guys are losers like all of you guys are losers like you just think you know, you're going to, like, pick apart this team and, like, half you don't know what I'm talking about. And, like, one thing that pissed me off so much was uh, was David Beckham himself because, like, Landon Donovan, some reporter asked a question in Spanish and Donovan, like, answered, like, his Spanish was decent, you know. And then, like, David Beckham, who had just come from, like, Real Madrid, like, he was, like, rude to this woman that asked a question in Spanish. Like, full on, like, just a dickhead about it. And I'm like, you know... I, I didn't understand like the way he treated her reminded me of the way that like small minded people in Utah, like white people in Utah would treat someone who like couldn't pronounce something correctly or whatever. And I was just like, what, what is this dude like coming in here and like behaving like this? And maybe look, I don't remember. They might've lost. I don't think they lost. I think they won. I don't remember, but um, he might've like just had a bad day. And so maybe he's a great guy and to all the people who love him, maybe, you know, I just saw this, you know, bad side of him that day, but I was just like, this is lame. And like, this is the best thing that MLS is offering. And like, I'm also like, I don't feel anything for this, these teams and I don't really care. I'm like so obsessed with Arsenal at the time already. And like, I'm just like, it it just felt so dead. And I think that's why you also didn't like Beckham. (laughs) Maybe. I mean, yeah, a lot of kids, like in a lot of kids that I grew up with who like, liked a team, it was always like man United. So maybe, yeah, it's just me being the contrarian, but like, he just seemed, he just didn't seem like a, genuine dude he seemed like he was here collecting a check and he was like not into it for anything and obviously the games were very sterile themselves and so i was just like i'm not gonna do this anymore i actually made it a choice that day i'm like i'm never gonna cover sports again because i'm like this is not something that i enjoy and like this whole idea of like pretending to like not care or like be neutral which like ironically i didn't care but like you know this idea that like these sports reporters like try to act like you know I don't know. They're like trying to. This is this, this, this whole charade of it. I don't know. It's like a game. They're like running around trying to put a ball in and that. Like take it easy, everybody. So it just. I mean, and keep in mind, like I was going and interviewing rappers. You know, all my articles were about rappers, and then I like, went to this game that was so sterile. It's like very different than like being in a room full of like smoke and drinking and swearing and like you know rappers threatening you if you don't give their albums good reviews. You know, so like. <laughs> And, and that was like funny. That was like funny and serious in a different way, right? It's, it's like I appreciated that. That was juvenile. But what went on in like the press box was just like, it was just lame, man. And so I was like, definitely, my mind was turned off for for covering sports for for a long time after that. So, so shortly uh, thereafter, you take a variety of international trips. So you do a stint in Spain. You do a stint in China. You do a stint in Brazil. Take us through, you know, how your life transitioned to so many different international destinations. Yeah, like I said, I think, like, some of the credit has to go to a friend of mine, Kai, who, like, he, like, was just this dude who, any chance he got, he, like, went abroad. And 
I was so hungry, I think, in my 20s for experiences. Um, I was willing to literally, like, do anything to have them. And again, like, being a freelance journalist isn't exactly a lucrative job, so I would have to, like, find and scheme ways to go to these places. I, I wasn't staying in hotels, and in the case of, like, the living situations, I would, like, yeah, have to, like, find ways to make it work. Of course, like, English teaching was part of the equation, Sometimes, in, in the case of Spain, I had, I had studied abroad, so that was when I was still in school. But in Brazil, I, after I graduated, I just wanted to go. It's like, you know, it's the spiritual home of soccer, we can at least say, to some extent. There might be people who disagree with that, especially in blue and white colors. But, um, like, it, there's, there's something about it. Um, and I went to Argentina when I was down there. You know, I, like, I, I followed Vasco da Gama, and I saw them get relegated for the first time uh, while I was there. And you know, made fast friends with a, like a lot of Brazilians, played a lot of soccer, you know, ran around and it was, it was soccer, girls and music, you know, like what could a 23 year old Dweez want more than those three things? And so it was so cool. You know, there's so many like visa back then it was a lot harder to go to Brazil. And I was like, you know, there's like gray area stuff going on in terms of how you're staying there. And, you know, you're just, you're just trying to live. You're just trying to have experiences. Um, I had, you know, because of my sort of hippie ski bummy background, my parents didn't have like super strong opinions about what I should do with my life, which was like a, I think a blessing and a curse, but like a blessing in the sense of like, you know, they couldn't really protest anything. So I'm like, anytime anyone raised any alarms, it's like, yeah, but you guys like just ran away to a ski resort and like left all of your responsibilities <laughs> behind just so you guys could have fun with powder days. So like, you know, I'm going, I'm, I'm from a legacy of, uh, running away to do things you enjoy. So like, yeah, so Brazil, that was Brazil. And then China, you know, was like in many ways the most influential on like who I am now. And that was after I had come back home and tried my hand in like, you know, the budding social media world, which are like, or a lot of journalists were either getting, you know, giving up all my friends who like I wrote with growing up either gave up and became lawyers or gave up and became marketers. And, um, the people who became marketers got into social media. And I, I tried both of those paths. Like I dipped my toes into both of them, but it just wasn't right for me. And, you know, as much fun as I had and other tangents I could go on there, like the point was that I went to China. Um, I even got into grad school and thought about going to go to like rhetoric and composition school and like study ancient Greek you know, like Aspasia and all these like rhetoricians and like think about how words move people and live in a glass tower somewhere and I never see humans, but I love humans. So that was never going to work. And so I went to China instead and um, totally, totally on a whim. I thought I was going to stay for two weeks and ended up staying two years and um, learned just so much about myself uh, during that time. And it was it's time of extreme change in my family and personal life. And we all kind of came out of it. And I moved back to LA thinking I would be going again abroad because I was very much still in that mode. And then this, to be honest with you, this thing called LAFC came along and this girl that I met came along around the same time. And those two things kept me here, I think for the better now, because yeah, there's just been so many, so many experiences there that it wouldn't matter where I ran in the world or where I was living. I don't think any of it could have matched quite how, how special that, that this has been. So do you think your literary background had something to play in this sort of 
quest to go from the small town and go to so many different places in the world. I mean, you're talking Spain, Spanish, right, speaking country, Brazil, a Portuguese speaking country, out in China where there's all the different dialects of China. I mean, you haven't stuck to a consistent cultural theme or even a consistent language. So right, is there and that's, something what, that's what happens. Like... That's what happens also when you marry a woman from Japan, and like now all speak, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm studying Japanese, and so this, these things were like mostly haphazard. But I, go ahead, Jonathan. What was the end of the question? Well, the end of the question was, I mean, to go from a small town to all these different random places, was there something in the world of literature that inspired you to do this? Was it like a Siddhartan quest from reading Hess or like Kerouac on the road or Zarathustra's down going? Like, what was it that sort of inspired you to go on this worldwide quest? Well, like I was saying before with like the whole reason I started writing in the first place, like I think a lot of these things happened to me rather than me choosing them. Like it wasn't as deliberate, especially in a writing sense. I mean, I started writing for my first magazine because some random person emailed me and was like, Hey, I read your work in the loyal and do you want to write about rap music in a magazine? And I was like, sure. And then someone else read that and they said, Hey, do you want to write about this and that? And like, so it was just like meandering in that sense. And even like early on, I was like, I thought books were trash. I was just like, dude, magazines, newspapers, like I'm just like short pieces. Give me that stuff straight to my veins right now. Like I, I don't have time for these long books. Like, you know, my studies of like, of it was sort of like either give me that or give me like ancient Greek philosophy that is going to like bore everyone in the world to death <laughs> and will just be about like thought and like just talking about like thought as long as you want like in terms of like the regular literary canon i literally didn't start getting heavily into that until i moved to china with like specifically david foster wallace and infinite jest which is like this really long and difficult but rewarding novel and then i sort of like came backwards and started figuring things out i read stuff for class because i was an english major but i wasn't into it i thought it was like not so I, I, it's weird because in a way, like the small town thing, right, is is like it's like a charming it's like a charming like anecdote. But the truth is, like, I also grew up here, you know, like it wasn't like Los Angeles was a mystery to me. And like I knew this city better than a lot of the people that knew it, because when I would come here, I would be I would want I would squeeze everything out of my moments here because I just loved it so much. And like I got to see my family and each of my family were in a different part and different facet and different industry like later. And so it's sort of like it's. And I'm not really from here either, right? Like, because I obviously spent so much time in my youth there. So it's, it's like, a, you know, coming back to this idea of like two different sized places with two different very experiences. It was just like I enjoyed and appreciated the variance of experience for life itself. And even now, like, you know, I've been in this house for five years, which is insane. I wonder, like, I, I can't imagine that, like, I could stay only in a place for the so long and I, and I felt and I still feel this way that like none of us ever have to choose like where we're going to stay forever like things aren't that drastic ironically I'm saying that while we're in quarantine where everyone's stuck but like you know we live in this this time and I hope this time extends to after this is all over we're like yeah like I mean I only lived abroad really like combined like four years maybe if I add up everything and that's a tiny part of your life Right. Like it's a minuscule part of my life, but the, uh, the effect was massive. I mean, it everything that I the, the way that I think, I mean, you can read about things, you can watch your until your eyes fall out documentaries about things. But until you go for a long time, like over three weeks, I mean, yeah, you can have a special experiences. It's like when you're living there and you like get to know the person on the corner and you like understand at a 
deeper level, like how different life can be for people. So in so many different parts of the world, you I feel like your brain changes, like you're, you know, the way you, all those things that you assume to be true. And I assumed a lot of things to be true. I was like a very arrogant, want to convince everyone that I was right. Um, kind of, kind of kid, even in my twenties, like you just keep getting proved wrong, like everywhere you go. And so it's so nice to just get beaten to shit in that way. And I encourage everyone to go get proved wrong a lot and get out of their comfort zone because if not for that, I think everything career-wise, like that all just like fell into place afterwards when I wasn't trying so hard, you know? And I was just like being myself and not like, I don't know, like, you know, just being so, so fixated on like some specific plan, um, which is weird because it's like on your daily life, how do you tell someone to how do you tell someone to just like trust that things will be okay and like just keep going and do the things that you enjoy and do the things that you think have value, even if they're hard, follow, be guided by your values rather than short-term goals. But like, that's a scary thing, especially to a young person. So I definitely, I definitely, you know, struggled with it, but I'm really happy about those years I spent. They, they made everything possible. I think there's something that you learn in traveling that, you could never get from a million books, movies, or documentaries, or any of that. Yeah, I I completely agree. And like, like I was saying before, in terms of like, in in retrospect, if I could have designed it, it would have been really rad to get so good at Spanish that I could like write novels in Spanish, or that my Chinese was so good that I could like be a full blown like you know translator, these kind of things. But the truth is like. My skills in all three of those languages are just conversational. Like I can have comfortable conversations in all three of them. When I had like my bravest moments in the LAFC press room, I would like ask questions in Spanish. And I conducted an interview with Edward Atuesta like 45 minutes alone in Spanish, which like I understood most things because he speaks like Colombian Spanish, which is like the last country that I spent like a long time in. Uh, I spent a time in Medellin in 2015 for three months just alone. And that was, that was Jonathan, to answer your question, my for sure definitive literary pursuit like this was this was where i went um i actually went down there to write a personal project after i had saved up a bunch of money writing other people's projects and it was literary from the jump and all the way through and it was beautiful but no those other countries was just like and i would scrap together articles in those other places i wrote in spain about barcelona uh, their kit sponsor unicef you know they had got their first kit sponsor wrote an article about that when I was in Brazil, I wrote an article, I wrote different things, you know, about like the experience of being in Brazil. And then in China, I wrote a lot. And that's when I started writing books for people um, while I was there. So. So your wanderlust brings you back to Los Angeles. How yes. did you become acquainted with this, you know, burgeoning LAFC? I don't know exactly, but I think it was a tweet. I think it was a tweet and it was the red letters and, you know, on black sometime, I want to say in December of 2014 or November, maybe, um, probably December. Uh, cause I remember like there being like a holiday vibe and, uh, and my, my cousin and I just got into a conversation about it and we're just like, my cousin Ben, who's a member of TSG, Benny Blanco, um, we're just like, dude, this is like could be cool and uh i was probably like uh yeah but like i might be like going to vietnam next for all i know you know like who knows like where this guy's going um but if there were ever a time uh, and i remember putting two season ticket deposits down i did have like the foresight and faith to be like if i ever reproduce 
which even now I don't know if I'm going to reproduce. But if I ever reproduce, like that kid's going the fuck with me to the games, you know. So I'm going to get two season ticket deposits, and I and I, I think I put those deposits in in November or December, and then like that was when the dreaming started, you know. And you start thinking, you start thinking, what this could be. They send out the little thing asking for feedback, and you're like, this is hilarious. Let's see, like what these guys are going to do. I still think at that point I'm like, God, dude, if this stadiums and city of industry like what's this gonna be like you know and um i wasn't living in expo park at the time actually uh when i wrote the article i was living where was i living i was in living in los filas i think um you mentioned the article the the famous now article that many of us became aware of you for the first time through at least within the lafc community the dear lafc i love you please don't screw this up Yes. So describe how that article came to be. What's the backstory behind that that now legendary piece? So that article came, I had been reading Howler a lot. And I had, Howler was the first time I had read about the sport in American soccer where I was like, this is interesting. This is cool. They've got great stuff going on. And George uh, Kirishi, who was a GQ editor, I think, had left in Kickstarter. I was one of the Kickstarter backers when they started Howler. I still think I had, like, some leftover starry-eyed fantasies about magazines surviving and being cool. And print was, like, so cool to me still, even though, like, I had started writing in hip-hop magazines at a time where they were all collapsing. Yeah, this is so cool, like, a birth of a new thing in Howler. So I was reading a lot of Howler, and then this thing came out, and... And I was like, I just, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about LAFC and like what it could be having had so many experiences abroad. I mean, I'm so spoiled with the amount of like once in a lifetime soccer experiences I've had sometimes like, you know, now with, with us not being able to go to games and stuff and like not knowing when we can go to games, it's like st- a stupid amount of of things that like I very much like lucked into, you know, and like just by pursuit of like wanting to explore and just like going for it. Um, like I did experience just so many really great things. And I was like, if, if anything could even like touch the heels of those experiences in the city that, um, is my ancestral home where all my family's from, where I've spent so many years, if that could happen here, the city where I went to soccer camps as a kid, where I felt like, you know, I really came in touch with the game. Like that would be the coolest thing in the world. Like if it could even, if it can even like brush up against the shoulders of those experiences, that would be so incredible. And so I wrote that article, like with the hail Mary in mind, like, all right, like you guys asked, cause it was inspired by the fact that in Tom, or I don't even know if it was, if it said Tom's name on the card that uh, he sent out, they sent out to season ticket holders, but they were like, you can build like, welcome, bring the, build this with us. And then I was like, Oh really? Like build this with us. Okay. Like, here's the wish list. Like I'm going to, I'm going to, and so I pitched Howler, got in touch with George. I don't remember if I had already pitched him other articles at that point or not. I don't think I had, I think this was the first one and he loved the idea. Uh, someone had written something similar, not similar, but they had written something about NYCFC before NYFC came. And so he liked the idea of like writing something about it. And the only articles that existed about LAFC at the time were like news stories about it being released. Like, I think this was like the first article that got into any sort of like, and I could be wrong, like I, for all I know, uh, Angels on Parade, what is now Angels on Parade, 
uh, Alicia, who's been a guest on our show, she might have written stuff about it too. I, I don't know this definitively to be true, but yeah, I hadn't read anything. And so I'm just like, all right, I'm just going to like write something. And it took me a few weeks of like driving around frustrated to like actually put pen to paper. And then I thought about all the things that I'd want and I put in all the things I love about the city and that I felt was missing about the experiences sort of tied into like the LA Gooners experiences I had um, a trip up to Portland where I saw the Timbers play uh, where a friend of mine was living and the things I thought that were good about that. And that were not so good about that. Obviously all the international ones, love of music, local supporting local beer, like so many little specifics and like the article was written in very much like the, the voice that I think I developed writing at the college newspaper, like sort of like, sort of fun sort of enjoyable sort of like ridiculous but also like extremely serious like at the end of the day like this i am like serious in its ridiculousness if that makes sense like i am a ridiculous person and this is how this should be were you prepared Um, for the article to get as big as it did to get you know plastered on the wall inside the offices uh no way dude no that was like the most absurd fact of all of this and shout out to uh Casey Sosa LAFC Casey who was one of the first hires at LAFC for ticket sales good friend now has been on the podcast before with Vinny and um I was a season ticket holder and I had never been a season ticket holder despite loving sports my whole life and of course when they said come into the experience center I was going to come but before that Casey had called me several times and I just like ignored the heck out of this guy and uh, he, like, didn't understand, like, why I was being so ridiculous. And I was just like, yeah, dude, just read the article that I wrote. Like, that's what I want. You keep asking me what I want, just read the article. And then I told my cousin to say the same thing. Or maybe he did it on his own. So he had a different sales rep who I think was Jeff Huber. Or he might have been Casey, too. I forget. Jeff Huber works with Bob and the team, the first team um, now. And, but he worked in sales before. So, you know between these guys and I had my mom put down a season ticket deposit too. So she, you know, she was in, she was like an LA Gooner 4am wake up woman. And, um, we all were just like, yeah, just read the art. Like, that's what we want. Just like read the article. And I, and he was like, okay. And I still, at that point, to my knowledge, only my cousin had ever read the article. I, I didn't even know that it was being read. Didn't hear anything about it. And like, it was only two years later, or a year and a half later when I went into the experience center met Casey and he was like, Oh, so you're like the crazy guy who keeps telling me to read the article. And I was like bothering him about free stuff all the time too. I was like, dude, when are you going to come on? Just like, give me some hats, bro. Give me some hats. Give me yeah. something, you know? <laughs> Casey was my and, rep too. I bothered yeah. him a lot. Yeah. So I, I bugged him and, um, yeah, Casey was, he put up with it. I remember one day, I think I really did like talk to him for like 45 minutes. And like part of the reason was he was like, yeah, I don't really know that much about soccer or something. I was like, wait, what? And so I just like tried to like convince him to be an Arsenal fan in the meantime, it was pretty funny. So, yeah, then I was there that day, and I was walking out with Casey after he like, showed me things. He's like, sure, you, you sure you don't want, like, these fancier? And I was like, dude, yeah, I'm going to the north end, dude. Come on, supporters. What do, you, what do you think this is? Like, I'm doing that, you know? And at that time, I had definitely planned to, like, I think my game plan was uh, to basically pitch the LA Weekly on, like a, like, a weird soccer column. They would be letting me to do it, like, once a month or something. But I hadn't done a lot to make that happen. I just knew I was going to write something about the team, but I had no intentions to like formally cover them or anything like that. But on the way out, uh, Rich was walking out, and Casey was like, "Hey, Rich, this is like the guy that wrote the. This is. Or I think he even just said like, this is Alex Dwyer, like the guy who wrote that article.' And he was like, "Wait, you're Alex?" And like, the from there, it just was ridiculous. You know, 
the journey began at that point. Um, oh, yeah, like it does for so many of us rich. Yeah. Rich looping us in. And I was, I was like in basketball shorts and like slip on sandals. It's like up the street from my house where the experience center was. So I wasn't planning on any of that. So it was super surprising. Rich gets mentioned in every episode. It is obligatory. No one, yeah, no obligatory. No one prompts it or anything. It just comes up. And it's, yeah. it's super interesting. He, he so was fun. the, he was the X factor. I mean, there's a lot of X factors with LAFC if we want to get into like the thing, but he deserves so much credit for the way he welcomed people to take ownership of this thing as their Absolutely. own. And, and I think all of us feel like it's ours. And I think, you know, you can't give anyone, there's so many people that deserve so much credit, but Rich get, get, deserves a lot of credit for opening the door so that we could all feel that way. Like, you know, helping facilitate lanes where those of us who were involved in different facets um, could could feel like it was ours. And when you feel like something's yours, like it that it reaches a whole nother level of possibility. It becomes something so much bigger than any any one or one or several of us. And so, yeah, so that, that was super surprising for sure. So never, thinking never, about things, never would have thought about it. Yeah, things that are that are yours. How did your sort of journalistic background in writing lead you to launch not one but two podcasts about the club? Well, I was reminded somewhere at some point I'd been covering for MLS, and I think now I hadn't written an LA Magazine article on Carlos yet, but I had written some other things in some other places. I think about LAFC. And I was just like, but wait, like no one reads. <laughs> I was like, you know, the illusion had fallen down. And I was like, people don't read. People listen to podcasts. And a, and a friend of mine who like, I guess you could say I, I was mentoring another writer by the name of Ben, a different Ben. He was like, kept talking about podcasts and like why podcasts were so cool and how they were like this venue for like intimate conversations and they were so like with the spirit of our times and what they could do. And I like, didn't listen to podcasts really um, besides like Japanese language podcasts. And I was like, that's interesting idea. And obviously I listened to heart of LAFC shout out to Jerry and Joseph. And I was like, Oh, this is cool. But like, it would be also cool to like, you know, have people over and talk about things, but like, I don't know how that's going to work. I had done, in a lot of ways, it grew out of, if anyone had a chance to read these, these this, speaking of, you know, big pieces of writing that maybe sometimes gets lost, I did these profiles on the supporter groups um, from the first season, and some of them were absurdly long, and, like, but my, I felt like I was, like, being a historian, and I wanted to record the moment for, like, 50 years from now, so people could know some of the details of, of what happened, and I got to do a great one with D9, like, right before the Sacramento game, went over to Ray's house, hung out with Julio and a bunch of the guys, and, uh, and gals, I think Daniela was there, and, yeah, it just, like, learning about any one of those groups was so fascinating, so I wrote this really long thing, and, of course, like, as someone who was also interviewing players, it was, like, I felt the culture was as interesting or more interesting and the supporters were as interesting or more interesting than the players um a lot of times and so i was like well let's why not do that in the podcast why not talk about those things why not talk about the reason why i'm d as deeply in love with the sport as i am like i was saying before i love the game itself still do that's why i started the other podcast but talking about them both in the same just seemed 
in my head, like it was like two different gears, you know? And, um, I was like, I'm just gonna talk about sports in one and the other one will be split, uh, and talk about culture having nothing to do with sports. But the funny thing is at the time, Josh and Sam, like I'm thinking about these things and Josh and Sam stopped me cause I had done a, uh, an article about TSG and they were like, Hey man, we want you to be our first guest on our podcast. I'm like, you guys are starting a podcast. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, well, I wanted to start a podcast. You guys want to start a podcast? And they're like, I don't know. Should we, should we start a podcast? And I was like, okay. I didn't know them very well at the time. Um, just for a few interactions, but they you know, rolled over to the pad cause it's sort of central. And we tried recording inside and we tried recording outside tried recording in different rooms and my little brother shout out to young young dweez dweezus 818 um who did our audio for a while he would listen to them and be like oh this sounded good or this sounded bad or you guys should do this you should do that there's like three or four episodes that we'll never see the light of day where we didn't even like (laughs) know we didn't even like know each other you know we were just like it was super different and i'm still somewhat uncomfortable with having the sound of my own voice like i had done a, a couple appearances on espn radio with dave denholm um after like i went to russia for the world cup and so like i knew and i'd been on like the youtube tv show a couple times so i you know i was going i was getting more comfortable with it but as someone who like hides behind their pen like talking was different than writing i couldn't edit what i had to say and in the beginning slim our scholar was very uh much like dude we should just you know, just put it out there, you know, just put it out there. And I was like, no, man, like I want, you know, it's that, it's that, it's that editing mind. It's that editing mind. And it's funny. Cause now it's like the opposite, you know, he's like, he cares more about like, yeah. Like how I, I shouldn't say he's like, he just, he's, he knows like podcasts better than me. And so he like gives us pointers on what to do. And none of us are good at like promoting or social media really, but we're all like learning with these like Instagram lives, which we've done, which is another thing that I really enjoy the LAFC is doing. It's like the, the 90 full 90 with Pat Marcus and rich during quarantine. It's been kind of fun to do these tea times, uh, that I do them on Fridays and Slim's been doing like some drinking ones. And Josh started one with like streaming. So we're like all gotten more comfortable with it, but, um, certainly, the podcast, just like uh, in a lot of ways, the writing stuff, it's like something that sort of transpired on its own. I find that in my life, a lot of the best things that happen are sort of like gain some sort of momentum in the periphery of like my conscious mind. And then they kind of like come together rather than me like being like, dude, I'm going to like do this, which is why I like I could never probably open a tea shop or whatever, because like that would be way too calculated and it would just be horrible. You know, it's just like the podcast happened in this like very natural way. And like the only reason we record outside is because my brother said it sounded good. And I think like the other rooms are occupied that night or whatever. So it's all very like accidental. And I think it kind of worked out. None of us could have done as good of a job as like you guys do like prepare. Like we would have given up after like three episodes if like <laughs> they had to prepare and like show up on time. These guys waited but it's for accidentally me, brilliant I was late. in its own way because I mean, FC FC is so unique in the cultural space that it occupies within this community. Right. And there's nothing else like it. There's probably nothing else like it in the sporting world because I mean, it is essentially an LAFC podcast, but it really has nothing to do with the game or, or the team, but it's still found a way to sort of exist within its own perfect space. It's, it's really a unique thing into itself. Thank you for saying that. I mean, I really appreciate the fact that it still exists and I really appreciate it when people tell me like, I don't want to say the exact thing, but like, you know, 
that's what we want. Like we want it to feel like you're hanging out in the backyard with us having a conversation. We all, I think, enjoyed so much the experience of meeting so many new people. And like, you know, the two touch points are really football and Los Angeles, right? And so if you have a relationship with either of those two things, that's good enough. Um, like, and it's cool to talk about either of those things or talk about like whatever it is, because like, I think, you know, we try to put people in boxes, um, to better understand the world, um, through like things like identity or their job or whatever. Um, but the truth is like, we're all like super multi-layered and have like all these things that don't make sense and incongruities and like gray spaces about like who we are. And unless you can have conversations like we try to have on FCFC where people can kind of like let their hair down and talk about the different parts of them that maybe wouldn't come out if they're talking about some specific aspect of their job or character, then, you know, you don't feel the fibers of like who that person really is. And I guess we're always grasping or reaching at like who we really are, much less other people, but at least like we get like a taste of, of what that is, I think when we when those podcast episodes are at their best but I, yeah i'm i'm grateful that you guys find value in it and i find value in like personally everyone that's in the in the lafc podcast space because everyone has their own everyone serves their own purpose and has their own angle and you know you could have the same guest on like five different podcasts and like have a different experience and i think that that's really like special and if there's any indication of why we love this thing, it's it's the conversations we all have with each other. And it's why even during quarantine, like we're all talking to each other digitally, even though the sport technically doesn't exist for all intents and purposes right now. The reason that we're all talking is because of it. But like, you know, we don't need it to have our community, well, that's which, is, actually, which is crazy. It's it's true that you bring that up, Luis, because look at Alexis Guerrero's, right? Like, you guys interviewed him on FCFC, we interviewed him, Defenders interviewed him, and Heart of LAC interviewed him, like, a, two years ago, right? So mm-hmm. you look at, and, and like you said, we all interviewed him, and we all had a different experience on there. So it is, it, it very much shows that we all have our own space and stuff like that, and it's it's awesome. And he said the same thing about us. Yeah, he did. He said that, too. I think uh, one of the things that's great about having guests on that are well-spoken members of the podcasting community, something we've noticed when we interview other people that do their own show is, like, normally when you have a guest like we had on last week that's a person that's not really comfortable with this medium, you're constantly trying to push them to say something, and it ends up being more the three of us just trying to, like, dig and dig and dig and provide our own anecdotes just to get more out of the conversation but in your case we can literally like set up and then like i could just sit back for two minutes and you'll just go i love it no you guys would be just you guys would just be cardboard cutouts and i would just talk to you guys like (laughs) (laughs) that's how bad that's how bad it's gotten you know it's also like we're all locked away so it's like wait a conversation with another person what (laughs) who am i uh... i'd be doing this anyways even if it weren't so for the three of us aren't locked away the three of us have to go out and deal with the crazy world every day Are you going to donate blood, Dweez? I probably will because it's close by. It's important. It's something that I haven't signed up yet. Um, I should. I should do it. Got to make sure the roommates are... We've got like a situation here um, where we've been all very like unified in what we do. Um, And so... As long as they're good with it, I think I'll probably do it, yeah. 
Yeah. I, I, you know, we, we, we don't, we don't want to be the one person that like is not doing the thing that the rest of the house is doing. Cause then everyone's like, you know, mad, mad. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. What's your favorite stadium experience outside uh, of Bank of California? Uh, so, well, what's your favorite stadium and or experience outside of the Bank of California in the soccer community? I think the South General Audio, like the Vasco Stadium in Rio, um, it's like so weird. And it, for a while, it was like the biggest stadium in Brazil until Maracanã was built. Um and it has this whole open side to it. It's like this giant U. And it has um, these like huge concrete steps. I really like that stadium, despite being at that stadium when Vasco were relegated and it being like the saddest footballing experience I'd ever seen. So it's like the worst experience, but kind of one of the cooler, cooler shit. I'm sure they're going to tear that down soon. It's probably not going to be around for much longer. Um, but my favorite experience, watching Argentina play with, like, in the throngs of the Argentine supporters sections has always been, like, peak aesthetic supporter culture for me. Um, even when I was, I watched Boca play uh, Independiente, club club level, that would probably be, like, the most intense. But, and I saw, like, Vasco play Flamengo, too, like some of the bigger ones in South America. But, like, yeah, like, Argentina's relationship with its national team is something extremely special. And um, I was able, luckily, to, to be with the Mexican fans, who I always thought were, like, kind of right neck and neck with Argentina with their relationship with uh, their national team. Uh, when I saw Mexico play against Sweden in the last World Cup, and I got to stand in, like, a pretty thick, good thicket of l3 fans but i'm gonna have to give it to the argentine experience and the specific one will be when maxi rodriguez scored the goal in two thousand. oh hell yeah six uh i was on the shoulders of an argentine man i didn't know who believed i was also from argentina and i was wearing a light blue shirt around my head and i was drinking a from a gourd of mate and i was on argentine tv that day like jumping around screaming singing <laughs> uh all sorts of argentine chants yeah that like there is just something about, I've talked a lot about it on FCFC. There's just something so like perfectly, I don't know. There's, there's, there's some textures to the way the songs are put together, the specificity of the moments that are articulated, like in all their, their national team things and the rhythms, obviously just, it's so good. And, you know, I lived in Brazil. I love the Brazilian soccer experience so much, but like, Brazilians do not have the same connection with the, uh, and the same, like, I don't know what it is, this same, the, I, it's, it's art, the art part of it. It's, that's, that's what it is. It's like the, the artist in me can't deny, like, the creativity and, like, the beauty that comes out of Argentine national team support. It exists in club level too, and all of us see videos of that. But there's something about the unity even in, like, the Argentine national team that, like, people are willing to put down like their differences and come together for the national team in a way that I think doesn't always happen. It happens a lot with like Mexican national team, you know, maybe some of the European ones, but uh, yeah. Famously, I remember like being outside of the Maracana watching 
Colombia played Brazil in a, in a qualifier and like there's all these Brazilian national shirts being sold and they're, they're these like fake zippers on the front of the shirt, which underneath is like their real club, you know, like they're real, they're really like Flamengo fans, but they just wear their, their Brazilian. I feel like for Argentines, it's the opposite. It's like, yeah, they love like, they love their clubs. Of course they love their clubs so much. We all know that, but like, I feel like underneath it's an Argentine national kit. So how do you think the experience at the bank compares with some of these experiences you've been fortunate enough to partake in on a global scale? Well, I think the experience at the bank is, it's obviously hard, I think probably for all four of us to separate ourselves from our involvement in it and like having been close to it for as long as we all have. But um, I can say what I really appreciate about it, the same thing I appreciate about all these other places when they're at their best is like, it's a true representation of what the place is. It has a, it feels like Los Angeles when you're there. Um, I've got a good friend who is a Sounders fan, actually, um, and he's from Seattle, but he went to school out here, and sometimes he comes down to visit. He's come to LAFC games twice, uh, and the second time he like wanted to bring so badly to bring his friend who had just moved here from Seattle. Like you have to see this. Like it's so like special, you know. And so like I think people who even have this fringe relationship with LAFC or, or Los Angeles itself can come there and be like. Oh, like if you've if you've experienced Los Angeles in anything like its totality or anything approaching its totality, you can't go to LAFC games and not feel like most of the major notes are hit. You know what I mean? Like so many of the things about it just feel like this city, and um, that to me is the most important. Just as the human I am, but that is like that's the way some of these better experiences feel when you go to as I say that being said as much as I am an Arsenal fan like when you're in Arsenal Stadium there is like a lack of that there's like a lack of feeling like this really is like London and North London it, it like there's all the history and the pageantry of the club but there's like there's something that's missing and obviously it, a lot of it has to do with pricing and you know the way British football culture has sometimes not been the best place for like you know, passion coming out in the most healthy ways. But, um, you know, even something like the Bernabeu, even something like the Camp Nou, like those places have like fragments of like what it feels like to be in those cities. Vicente Calderon before they changed it to whatever the Wanda it is now. Like, you know, those, those have that. But in a way, like I think Will Ferrell said on the podcast with Jordan and, and Larry, like, this could have been 80,000. We could have filled it, but I'm like so happy it isn't because there's something about like the intimacy of it. And there's something about like the nearness of everything in that stadium that also make it really special. One of the reasons I like the San Januario is like when you go to a Vasco game there, it's like they play, they play at the Maracana all the time, Vasco, but when they play their real stadium, it's like there's just an intimacy and a closeness. And yeah, so I think it, it exceeds them in some ways and is equal to them in other ways. And then, you know, you'll never have the, 200 years of history or 100 years of history of it um we've always will have started late but if if it always feels authentic and real then it'll continue to be important to people even if they're seeing it for the first time you touched on a theme there this sense of location where you take one experience at an lafc game and you get a sense of what it means to be los angeles this is a theme that 
we talk about a lot in the wine world where when you drink a glass of wine, does it smell and taste and represent the place in which it came? And I was mm-hmm. curious with you being such a connoisseur of the world of tea, do you think that's a concept that transcends within to that beverage as well too? And does that relate to the experience at the bank? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, like there's this idea that you can never drink the same tea twice. It's probably similar in like wine same as when we go to games at the bank as many times as there are shades of that same flavor you can never go to the same game twice and there's always like a specificity and a uniqueness to the moment that feels like it's within its class and the more you explore that one category that one class and see all those different unique manifestations of it the more you can actually like grow to appreciate the qualities that remain and the qualities that change i'm drinking Shihu Longjin, like Westlake Dragon Well. It's a green tea. It's a tea I look forward to like every spring. Like specific Chinese green teas are so, so good when they're freshly plucked. Like, you know, the majority of people don't even get a chance to drink these teas because they're like so sought after in China. The the woman I get these teas from in Alhambra, her name's Iman. She runs a website called Tea Habitat. And I, you know, drink a lot of her teas on our podcast. But, like, you know, those teas that she gets and, like, it, it's, like, the real deal. Like, going to LFC games is, like, the real deal. Like, so, some of these stadiums, like, are the real deal. And, like, I'm sure with the wine world, it's the same. It's, like, when you get to have that and from that same region and the same locality and you get to, like, experience it and explore it in different ways, you can grow to appreciate it. Not even on a uh, – <laughs> I've, I've got my feet up. I feel like I'm on FTFT right now. That's the problem. <laughs> um, That's so, good. We got so, you right where we want you. Yeah. Be natural. So, no, so so I, uh, you know, not not to be pretentious is the word I'm looking for. Like, it's not about being pretentious. It's about, you know, it's not pretentious to be like, dude, I love like the certain type of carnitas taco, like because I've had so many carnitas tacos before that are from, you know, the same idea. It's like you can learn to appreciate anything, highbrow, lowbrow, beverage, song, soccer experience by repetition and like expressing to somebody like how that feels and that's what's so fun about you know culture itself is like when you drill down and you get to like experience those repetitions you you know you get to like appreciate all the all the fabric of like what the present moment offers you which like you know that idea you can never have the same tea twice you can never go to the same game twice in many ways that's what we want in like if i'm going to get really existential that's what we want in life is we want to be able to appreciate the moment we want to be able to appreciate now. And now is never will never be, you'll never have the same conversation like we're having right now. It's never going to happen. Not because I'm your guest, but it's just not going to happen. And we're not, the way, even though you guys can do 600 more episodes, and I hope you do, you'll never have the same episode twice. And, um, you know, the ability to appreciate that is different from the ability to logically recognize that. That's where, like, that, that other part comes in, right? That other part of being able to experience it again and again and still being able to recognize the different facets. It's not a so mind, it's like a soul thing. So what's the haps in the tea world? You mentioned you're crushing some freshly cut green at the moment. So take <laughs> us take us down the tea path oh, for a minute. God. How'd you get into it? What are some of your favorite things uh, in the tea world? How did you end up becoming the guru of tea? The first rule of tea is you can't talk about tea. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> like, it's so... It. Dude, it's the perfect metaphor. Like, it's so hard to, to like, and I guess wine's similar, and like tea and wine specifically, like, sort of exist in the same, same world. Um, 
like, I drink tea because it makes me feel good. I drink tea because I think it's delicious. Uh, like, the benefits, if there any exist, um, are, like, so secondary to me. At one point when I started writing a lot more, I noticed that hangovers were not conducive to my writing process. I wasn't able to Bukowski that shit and just, like, lump together a bunch of whiskey and, like, come up with some stuff. Like, it just wasn't happening for me. And in some ways, I come from an addictive family, a family who has had a lot of addicting problems. I feel spared of some of that because, like, substances just rock me so hard. Like, I just, you know, they just mess me up. And so I can't, like, hope to do them and, like, still maintain, you know, a good working rhythm. So in some ways, it was, like, by necessity in college, I started, like, I wasn't really into, into coffee because, again, like, it obviously, like, it kind of, like, rocks me. Like, if I drink coffee, I'm just, like, wired and, like, going to, like, tear everybody down, like, as I run down the street with, like, my arms out. You know, I'm just going to be a maniac. But tea sort of has, because of uh, an amino acid in it, called phenanine it's sort of like a time release release capsule for caffeine so a lot of times tea can have more caffeine than coffee but it's released over a longer period of time so it doesn't feel like it's like smacking you like you know like a good cup of espresso so that effect and that the taste came something i liked in college and then um just little bits by bits you know, there's a good Los Angeles story in there about a sushi restaurant in Culver City, which I would go to, which had this really good, like, Japanese green tea. And I found out where it was distributed, and I drove downtown to the location. This was, like, back in 2007. That is now Tea Master, which is, like, one of my favorite uh, green tea shops where I actually worked for a little while. Uh, my friend Daigoro runs it, and they have, like, the best matcha ice cream. And when this is all over, people should try it. If they like ice cream, they should try it because like Yelp or BuzzFeed called it like the best soft serve in California. Like people come from all over to like try this stuff. Um, but he sells really fine Japanese teas. And before he was in that location, there was another tea shop. So, you know, I got into Japanese tea a little bit. And like all these categories of tea, like the big three, you could call them Japan, India, and China all have very different types of tea um, and like different tastes. And there's so many, there's, you know, in the six classes of tea, which is, you know, Pu'er, or like you could say, you know, post-fermented tea, if you if you want. Um, that's one category. Then black tea, green tea, oolong tea, white tea, yellow tea. Uh, there's so much in each and all those categories, and I love all those categories, and I love all the countries where tea comes from, and I love trying and sampling different things. And luckily, we have some insanely good local tea sellers here in Los Angeles. Uh, like I said. Tea Habitat in Alhambra is one of my favorite for Phoenix Oolong, which is like a very specific type of darkly roasted Oolong, which is like, yeah, you know, I, I could like go go on and on about all this. But before I do that, I should, just, <laughs> I, I should just say like, you know, the one thing that people should, if there's anything to marvel about with the tea industry, it's that almost all tea, 95% of tea, you could say that I'm talking about comes from the same exact plant. So there's not the tea, way I'm talking about tea and all these different tastes. It's it's actually just the same plant. It's all in how how it's grown, where it's grown, and um, you know how they they process it after it's picked. So that's like the coolest thing in the world to me. It's like you know water and plants and like just 
human ingenuity. Like there's no sugar that's added. There's no like different flavor. I mean, there are flavors with jasmine tea and Earl Grey tea and stuff, but I don't tend to drink a lot of those. These are just like, yeah, the, the plant, you know, the same plant, Camellia sinensis. And it's just, yeah, it's such a cool thing. And like I said before, if it, it, it's my, it's my way of expressing my, maybe addic the addictive qualities that are in my genes Thankfully, the dice rolled in such a way that it, it happens to be in like a healthier way, I think, than some of my other options could have been. Well, we're happy to fuel that addiction. I know Christian and myself both have uh, a little stash set aside for you when this is all over. We plan on dropping your way. Yeah, I, I remember you guys mentioning that and I, I can't even wait. Like I, I yeah. yeah, I'm always interested in trying trying new teas. And like we were saying, can never drink the same cup twice. I have still so much to learn about tea. I'll never I'll never get to the bottom of it. That's why it's like kind of the perfect interest. Like you're hopeless to try to ever think that you could know as much as there is to know about like the second most bev drank beverage in the world that like has all this wild history to it. So do you have any tea pairings or? Uh, other ways you consume tea apart from that soft serve you described so yeah like i love tea flavored things for sure and like i've you know tried to like use tea in cooking sometimes but uh i went to this experience once in tokyo at this place called sakurai in omoto sando and like it has you you know he had like the tea in so many different ways and then like you can eat some of the tea was like so delicate and like the way it was made it's like you just eat the tea like you just eat it and you like dip it in soy sauce and like try it it was so good and like matcha technically you're eating it right um that's one thing that's kind of interesting about matcha for those of you you know everyone knows like matcha flavored green tea flavored things but like if you drink a bowl of matcha you're technically eating it because it's actually the dissolved suspended powder which is ground up leaf so you're not really like drinking matcha, you're like eating it. So that that's like another like culinary facet. Like matcha is really easy. Like, you know, people have like weird misconceptions about it. Like you just sprinkle it on everything. It's like green dust that will like cure every ailment, but it totally isn't. It's just delicious shade grown tea. Um, <laughs> and there's like so much confusion in terms of like grading because it's like, yeah, it's like ceremonial like matcha Kit Kats. You're like, what does that mean? And like... <laughs> you're like yeah so there's like there's a lot of like fun and like stupidness and i'm obviously like this white guy like fumbling his way through like a, yet another like culture that i'm like technically like a visitor or a guest in but um yeah i i love that and i think that um, well i mean you do have a lot of interesting things you you yeah. enjoy explore right there's traveling yeah. there's football if you, if you there's yeah, tea if you yeah, if you come at whatever your interests are with like a place of realness and humility, which is something I definitely didn't have yeah. when I was younger, and sometimes probably still don't have, you know, I still suffer. But like, yeah, you know, you just be interested in the things you love, and like, there's nothing wrong yeah. with getting a little crazy with it. You, for the most part, won't lose friends and like loved ones. They'll still love you, I think. Jonathan knows yeah. what I'm talking about. <laughs> he's like over there. He's over there nodding. He's just like, yeah, man, I don't yeah. <laughs> the pain of wanting to know too much. It's, uh, it's fun, I think, to specialize in something, I think, especially in the beverage world, because it's something that's so esoteric to so many people, so intangible, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, I just, I think I need somewhere to put my brain sometimes and just like letting it just, it's like a puppy, which I just got. Maybe that's why I'm thinking about puppies. But like, you just put the brain inside of like a little pen 
And that pen is like this interest and it's just running around, like hitting the walls and sometimes having a good time and sometimes getting frustrated. And when it's over, you're like, I feel better, you know? Well, you've been very gracious with your time today. We have one last question for you before we uh, send you packing today. It's the theme of our show, sir, and it's what does shoulder to shoulder mean to you? Christian, you asked me this on the on the on the rooftop of uh, of of the field. What is it called? Of the what do you call the? Yeah, no, 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 no. The stadium, the the, sunset club. Yes. Sunset deck, the sunset deck. That's what we call it. See, I haven't been there for so long that I don't even remember what these places are called. I had it. I was extremely happy at that point in time. But do you remember what I said? I have the recording. I don't remember because that was a long night. You guys should find find the recording recording and play whatever that is because I don't remember what it was either. And it might be kind of funny. But I'll, 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 I'll also it. answer. I'll also answer just in case. But if you can find that recording, and it's also funny to add, let's see how much either my opinion has changed over time, or it hasn't. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I think I just walked up to you, by the way, and just asked. Yeah, you, you did. You did. You did. You did. And I think I had met. I think I had met Jonathan. Jonathan might have given me a scarf before that, or maybe he did after. No, I I gave you the scarf. You gave me the scarf. Yeah, I was. I was. Right before one of the games, I remember uh, I like I had just gotten all the scarves too, and I walked up and I was like, "Dweez, hey dude, I got a scarf for you." And you're like, "You know I can't wear this, right?" Like, I, <laughs> oh, was I going to work? I think I was going to work. Yeah, and I was like, "No, no, it's all good, man. It's all good." I said, I, "You know, I just I you know I, I wanted to just give you one." He's like, "Oh," and you're like, "Oh man, thanks, I appreciate it." It was you. You're right. Now I remember it. I can see your yeah. face. Did you yeah, introduce yeah. yourself as Christian? No. <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> I don't know, dude. This is this is a it's just a problem with me, dude. I'm like I think like my dad's name was Chris and like I just see Chris and Chris and I was just like, okay, there's too many of the same names everywhere, so I'm just gonna get everyone confused. I apologize for that. <laughs> but um Yeah, so I remember talking to you up there. What does shoulder to shoulder mean to me and what does it mean to me today? Because that's where we're at. Um shoulder to shoulder means having to not feel bad when you go on long rants about anything <laughs> to the people who are gracious enough to have you come on their podcast and give give you room to have long rants um, from a great distance away. Now, shoulder to shoulder, shoulder to shoulder, come on, like the most obvious one means like even when you're not together, you feel like you're together, right? Like even when you're not, when you, even when you're restricted from physically being together, restricted from being shoulder to shoulder, you can still feel like you are. I love how many different answers we get to what seems like a very logical question. It seems like everyone, <laughs> everyone's like, oh, they're going to ask me the shoulder to shoulder question. And I'm going to have, you know, the same answer that everybody else has had. And it's going to be quick and it's going to be simple. And, and yet we never get the exact same answer from two different people. It always comes out slightly different. So what does shoulder to shoulder mean to you? Man, shoulder to shoulder to me, in addition to being those magic letters inside of the jerseys, it means that if it, it's aspirational. If we stand shoulder to shoulder together as Angelinos, as lovers of the game, as people who want to participate in something positive in the city, we have the potential for giants to stand on top of our shoulders and stack up 
and stack up and stack up and reach greater and greater heights, greater and greater things. It might sound a little bit corny, but I think it means being something, being part of something larger than yourself. We can do this all night. You should just do an all shoulder to shoulder definitions episode with me someday. I'll, I'm down to come uh, and do it. Let's do it. We're getting to the point where we could probably just put all the answers together and form one episode at this point, 64 episodes in. I actually, I actually thought that's what Christian told me he was going to do. And when you first asked me that day, I think yes. you were like, yeah, we're going to get all of them together and put it. So we are. I, I want to hear are. that. And I did say that. You're right. Yeah, I got a memory, bros, even though it might seem like I don't sometimes. <laughs> I'm doing my best out here, y'all. I love you guys. Thank you for having me on. Um, I can't wait to have you guys in the backyard. That's a promise. All three of you. Great. Yeah, um, that'd be great. And we'll probably go down even weirder rabbit holes because Slim the Scholar will be on to uh, smarten us all up. Of course. Yeah, after hearing the uh, rich, the rich Orozco interview in the backyard, I'm, I'm like, man, anything is fair game, man. Anything could be talked about. <laughs> we could talk about it all, man. We could talk about it all. The tongue can traverse anywhere, indeed. That's true. Nice. So, with that, we would like to thank you sincerely for carving some time out of your evening to join us, even if it is in the digital space. Uh, we appreciate this connectivity in this time. So thank you so much for joining us, sir. It's nice to have uh, a true scholar, a true journalist on the show. We really sincerely appreciate everything you do for the LAFC community and you coming on here as well, too. So thank you. Thank you, sir, for coming on. Thank you, guys. I appreciated it. I can't wait to see you in person. With that, Thanks, on dude. behalf of Chris, Christian, myself, sound engineer Wilton, and Mr. At A Dweezy, Dweez Alex Dwyer for coming on the show. That'll wrap us up for episode 64. Thank you, everyone out there. Be safe. Take us home, sticks. They won't need to stop, but I ain't. Come to my house, I'll defend that bank.